Hey there, sunshine. Get ready to ignite your team's potential as we delve into the remarkable journey of Audrey Davis, an expert in creating a culture of trust and respect in the financial sector. I'm your host, Jordan Carmack, a leadership development and communication skill coach in London, Kentucky, and you are listening to Women of the Bluegrass, a leadership development podcast for and about women leading the way in Kentucky industries. My guest today is Audrey Davis. She's the VP of Member Experience for Ashland Credit Union, located in Ashland, Kentucky. As a frontline leader in the financial services industry for 24 years, Audrey is a believer in strategic solutions to the multifaceted member and employee experience challenges facing the industry. Using energy, passion, skills, and interpersonal communication, Audrey believes that engaging both the member and the employee is at the heart of a successful member experience. Related specifically to leadership development, Audrey believes that people need to learn to refine the skills they have naturally, rather than try to be someone they're not. According to Audrey, only then can a person truly excel in their leadership development potential and become the best employee and leader they can be. Now let's get to it. Well, you are listening to Women of the Bluegrass, and I am so excited to welcome all of our listeners um, and introduce you guys to Audrey Davis. Um, she was connected to us from another guest on this podcast from a previous episode. If you caught the episode with Shelby Morrison, um, she was who recommended Audrey as this amazing leader in the Ashland community. And so, uh, Audrey, I'm just so glad you're here with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm Super excited to be here to have a, a quick chat with you and um, share some ideas about leadership and whatever else we want to talk about. Yeah, listen, that's one of the fun things about this show is I feel like we always get to dive in and pick out different nuggets and learn something along the way. So I want to begin one of the things that was in your bio is so clear that you're passionate about the employee experience. Now, that doesn't necessarily seem like something you might have said at 15 and said, hey, I want to go have a job at employee experience, right? So I'd like to know, have you always been passionate about that? So in my journey, I will tell you that I am a rather unique individual and in that I have been in the same industry since I was 16 years old. Um, there was a special program in my high school and I took advantage of it and I got a job as a teller at Fifth Third Bank and started in my career with that. Um, I very quickly learned that the people that you work with, uh, people around you, is what makes a company tick. It's what makes a company move forward. In the financial services industry especially, those frontline folks, those are the people that are the face of that financial institution. So as a consumer, when you or I go and we do what we do, we have a perception about corporations, whether they are large corporations or small corporations, and those perceptions are derived from the interactions that we have with the employees. So I can say that as young as 16, I really just thought it was super cool that I got to work at a bank and started to learn this really cool industry. Um, and then as I graduated high school and I started into college, uh, like a lot of young people, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I you know, grew up and I, I had no idea. So I just stayed working at the bank and got my degree and just continued to move up and loved it. And some, some point along the way, and I would say it was pretty early on, it became very important to me that the people that I was around, whether I was managing them or not, 
became a work family and the experiences that we shared together uh, were important and foundational uh, for who, who we become as employees um, and how we contribute to society. So it sounds like we're talking a little bit about workplace culture here too, is what's this environment that we're in together and these relationships that we build? Because people who have trust for one another, whether they're supervisors or direct reports or individual contributors, when there's trust in those relationships, they can be more innovative and they can be more effective. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, trust is something that's so important and foundational in the workplace because it allows for you to be who you are, you know, and we're all created differently. We all have been given different skill sets that uh, make us the person that we are. And when we can tap into those skill sets, that's really when you have something awesome. And then when you have diversity of skill set in a work group, man, the explosion of innovation and ideas is absolutely amazing and you're unstoppable. And so when you're able as a leader to help your employees tap into those things, you really see um, just success all around you, whatever your company that you work for, whatever the objectives are, you're going to have success because you've tapped correctly into the skill sets of the people that um, you know you are surrounded with. Yeah, absolutely. So you're in your early to mid twenties and you've been in banking for a while and it sounds like you were a teller, branch manager, you're working in the bank and then what happened where you switched gears and moved into more of this employee engagement? Did someone um, invest in you? Did somebody come to you and say, hey, we think you're great at this? What was that moment like when you transitioned? Yeah, so I officially became a branch manager um, in 2010, and I had already been in multiple roles at that point. And I wasn't struggling, but I was having a hard time getting my team engaged in what they were doing and meeting objectives. I was struggling with meeting goals that the company had set forth for me. And so I thought, I need to get my team as excited about this as me. <laughs> and yeah. I, I thought, I need to take my energy and just dump some of it into these people. And we will have a great thing if we do that, right? So I started to read books. Um, one of the books that came to mind for me was um, uh, Who Moved My Cheese. It's an old book, but it, you know, it basically talks about, you know, change and how life has things that throw at you and you have to deal with change and kind of move forward with it. So I read that book and I started to focus in on, okay, what makes my team disgruntled? And I was able to really pinpoint it was changes being asked, you know, of, of each other from the workplace. Um, and so I was able to tap into that, start using that. And then when I got um, the branch that I affectionately remember, I will always remember it. I was a branch manager at this particular branch for seven years. It will always hold a special place in my heart because that's where I learned how to actually be an effective branch manager. And I had an employee who was uh, struggling emotionally and they were having a hard time. And I had to make a hard choice because I had to look at the good of the team. And sometimes you have to part ways and that's a very difficult conversation. So it was the first time I had to do something like that. And when that happened in that moment, I just felt, wow, like what could I have done differently as a manager, as a leader, to help this person? What did I do wrong? 
uh, how could I have done something differently? And so I really started to do a whole lot of self-reflection on that. And then it was around 2015. I was still at this branch that um, I, I grew up in, basically. And I decided that it would be very helpful to start um, tapping into talent that was untapped and helping people realize skill sets. And so um, my manager at the time was very encouraging. And he said, you know, well, what do you, what do you want to do? And I came back to him and I said, I want to mentor people. I want to help people learn how to do this. I want to, I want to take some of these ideas and I want to start teaching people. And then I want to find people who has the same passion and teach them how to mentor someone. And then they can mentor someone. And then we have this mentorship program that we could do. So I was encouraged to write a mentorship program and I did. Um, and, and then I launched it and uh, it was pretty successful. We were able to start mentoring people and, and helping develop their skill sets and um, I still stay connected to many of the people that I mentored and um, it, it's, it's really special. So, you know, it just, it didn't happen overnight um, to answer your direct question about, you know, what made you want to be involved in employee engagement? It was slow. It was a self-realization of I can help people and mm -hmm. I want to help people. I want to serve people. I want to inspire people. How can I do that? Uh, so and here we are. So wow. it, it's been a fun journey. So in that mentorship program, I love, I, oh gosh, mentoring and coaching are so important to the development of people, but also helping them, like you mentioned, recognize what they're good at and then pass on that knowledge. They begin to feel more valued. What were some of the changes that you saw within your team once that mentorship program was in place? So once I started to mentor people, um, most of the people I was paired with were not members of my team and my branch, but I was mentoring them anyway. So I kind of put them through the program myself. So I was mentoring people outside my branch, but then I was also mentoring people inside my branch. And what we saw was more of a vulnerability-based trust come out. Hmm. And when you have vulnerability-based trust, where people are willing to say, I'm really sorry, I messed up this, I feel scared because, and then they, they share with you the emotional side of it. And they do it in such a way that it's a balance of that logical process with the emotional process. And then when you're able to have that vulnerability-based trust, then you can have conflict that is healthy. And you can talk about things in a way that gets 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 the process moving forward. So in other words, you're not an artificial harmony land. You're talking to people about things that you really need to work on, things that would be beneficial, things that are received properly. So the biggest change I saw in my team was that we were all able to work together in tandem better. It was just this, for, for lack of a better word picture, it was just a well-oiled machine. We were able to trust each other. We understood each other. We were able to have healthy conflict with one another. There was you no know, backbiting and, and whispering and gossip. You know, everybody was able to have conversations in a very stress-free way with one another. And then that led us to be able to say, okay, guys, we have to get this goal. We need to be committed to this. And then they were committed. And then once they were committed, then they could hold each other accountable. And then that's where you can really start to see, okay, who among my team is a little L leader, meaning they don't have a title of a manager, 
but they're an individual contributor and they've got leadership skills. And by golly, we need to figure out how we can channel this because that's untapped talent. And now let's refine the soft skill so that they can be who, who they were meant to be. Wow. I, I want to come back before we move, move on to this idea that conflict is healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what did you say? Artificial harmony land? Mm-hmm. That, that was hilarious, but it's so true. I think we want to say that um, a team without any conflict ever must be a healthy team. Um, and that sounds like this idea of this artificial harmony where we're all maybe going along to get along, but we're not actually dealing with the things that we need to. And so there is an environment where conflict can be healthy because it helps you address shortcomings. It helps you work through stressful situations. Um, there, That is possible among teams. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Right. So I will I will give credit where credit is due. Uh, Patrick Lencioni, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, is where this this artificial harmony and this conflict, healthy conflict, come, comes from. So I, I definitely want to give credit to him. He's um, great. I have, yes, he's great. I have a lot of respect for um, his work and his writings. And I am a firm believer that The Five Dysfunctions of a Team is absolutely um foundational when you are dealing with a group of people who are working on a team together, they have to be able to to work through it. So, you know, um, conflict is healthy. You have to be able to talk through things. If you live in artificial harmony land, then you're not ever going to get anything done. I think about the family, the family table, you're having dinner and everybody says, how was your day? It was fine. How was your day? It was fine. Every, everything's fine. It's fine. And then 15 minutes later, there's an argument over who's going to unload the dishwasher. Why is there an argument? Well, because really, maybe our days weren't fine. And maybe we're just saying that because we're just all smiling and it's fake. We have to say, no, actually, my day was not fine. And it was not fine because, and this is really bothering me. So if you have artificial harmony, the same thing can happen in a work group, you know, and I liked to have meetings once a week where we sat around in a, in a group and we and we discussed what's bothering us. And it's not because we're here to have counseling session in, in the workplace. It's because people need a platform to be able to constructively talk about the things that are bothering them. And they have to be able to discuss these things with one another in a constructive way that is not destructive um, and it doesn't put anybody down. And it propels your team forward. I'm sort of thinking um, in a very specific sense, if there, for example, is a process that is somewhat repetitive. Mm-hmm. And if you have a member of your team that gets really, they're passionate about efficiency mm-hmm. and doing things once the right way, <laughs> that kind of repetitive task that is unnecessary could be a source of a lot of friction for that person um, mm-hmm. if it's not really necessary. But if that person doesn't feel the freedom or feel like they have the space to say, hey, I noticed that we're doing the same thing over and over again when I don't know that we really have to. If they feel like they can bring that to the table and reduce that friction, first of all, for them and that frustration, but then also potentially improve your processes and experiences for the entire team. Right. So that actually gets back to what you were talking about prior prior to us moving into this um, with innovation. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your employees are engaged, you have more innovation, you have more diversity. But then as you're going through that process, if you have a team that has that uh, vulnerability-based trust foundation and they have that healthy conflict figured out, and you do have a scenario where someone says, hey, wait a second, why do we do this? What's the reason for this? 
why do we, you know, print this off and then scan this again and then print this off again only to, do, you know, yep. <laughs> I don't do this. Um, and, and that's true. And, and in my role now, I see that a lot with, um, you know, why do we do this? And we do this. Um, there's a reason for it. But let's talk about it. Let's let's get to the why behind it. If you can explain the why, then you can get to the what and the how. But sometimes you can't explain the why. And if you can't explain the why, then you have to work through the conflict that that might that might bring up. Because then you're getting into people and change management. And, well, we're going to stop doing this process because this person rightfully brought up that this is frustrating for them. We talked about why we do this. We determined that we don't need to do this anymore. So how can we move forward? And how can we move forward collaboratively? So that's important too. This is where you get back to your team and you say, here is, uh, Sally has said she doesn't like this. Sally has uh, been vulnerable with us and said that this causes a lot of frustration for her. Now we're gonna talk about this as a team. And you have Billy on the team that says, um, well, I like doing it that way. Why do we have to change that? <laughs> yep. And so you, then you have this collaborative effort of, well, okay, what do you like about it, Billy? Let's talk about how we can make it so that you're happy and Sally's happy. And ultimately, when you have a team that is functioning correctly, you might arrive to the end result where not everybody has agreed on what the end result is. But because they had the ability to voice their opinion and they were able to be heard and they were able to be validated, they're committed and they're okay with it. And they can move forward. And I think that that is what continues to make a healthy team you know, move is because they have that commitment with one another and they're, and they're okay with that. Absolutely. Whew, man, that is good stuff there. I feel like I should, I should be taking notes right now. Um, so I want us to shift gears just a little bit. I'll be honest. I, I, um, looked you up on LinkedIn a little bit and um, noticed that you have a graduate degree in ethical leadership, which I find absolutely fascinating. Um, now, this term ethical leadership, I, I would like you to sort of tease that out a little bit and explain what does that mean to you? So for me, ethical leadership is all about taking your moral um connections that you have, what, whatever faith you're with. Um, I personally am a Christian and um, I read the gospels frequently and I look at the life of Christ and what he did. And I say, okay, this is my ethical baseline. This is my moral baseline. And how do I emulate that in my leadership style? How can I be the person that I'm supposed to be every day, delivering that to my team and also delivering that, you know, with my husband and also my children. How can I be the best leader I can possibly be? And how can I do that ethically? Hmm. So I think that there is a little bit of, you know, ambiguity with ethical leadership because everybody yes. is different. <laughs> everybody has a different moral compass. They have a different mm -hmm. outlook on what, what is ethics, uh, mm -hmm. what is morality. So sometimes you get into some theological uh, and philosophical uh, debates when it comes to this particular topic. Yes. Uh, so, but for me, it, you know, ethical leadership is all about, um, you know, that um, 
taking my morality, taking my ethics, and then marrying it with that leadership roles that I that I hold. You mentioned that there can be some sort of um, uh, discussion, perhaps sometimes heated, because some things it's pretty it seems pretty simple to categorize them into good and bad, but then some of these other ethical components can be slightly more difficult to determine. And when you get to the root of conflict between members of a team, sometimes it comes down to they have some different value systems that are actually clashing. Um, I'm thinking something um, sort of simple like um, someone who highly values transparency Mm -hmm. versus someone who recognizes that maybe it's in their perspective – keeping a secret can protect a person or an organization from harm. And so that is one of those sort of, I don't, I don't want to call it a messy middle necessarily, but where some of these subtleties can, can come into conflict. It's not always black and white. Right. And especially in the financial services industry, you you see a lot of gray, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's lots of black and white policies and procedures, but you do have to have the skill set that we're talking about in order to have the right mindset when you're making decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to your example. Um, so you bring up a very good point and it has happened and it has happened frequently where really what, what is really going on is a clash in values. And I want to encourage leaders out there to have patience with that. Because you can't fix it. You can't change what someone's value systems are. You need to respect what someone's value systems are and take that into consideration when you're talking with them and when you're coaching them and when you're mentoring them. If you recognize their value system is different than your value system, then you you need to take a step back and make sure that everything you talk with them about is going to still be relevant for them and, and assess that. And I will use this as an example. You really see this with different generations. So we have a lot of uh, multifaceted challenges that we have both with the customer and member experience, but then also with the employee experience. You have these different and diverse generations that are in the workplace and they have different value systems. Maybe they were raised differently. Um, Even within the United States, if you have somebody on the team that is from, say, you know, California versus someone who is from Maine, well, they might be different. They're going to have different experiences. Yeah. The weather's different. The mm-hmm. culture's different. The environment's different. I love America because there's all kinds of pockets of anthropology across the United States. And sometimes that's right. you've got one of those, each representative in your, in your work team. So it can be, it can be a lot of fun. So it's very important to respect those different value systems. And as an ethical leader, that's really the crux of it. You have to recognize what those value systems are, and then you have to respect that. And sometimes it gets down to saying, I hear you. I respect what you're saying. I disagree with you. This is why I disagree with you. I know you probably disagree with me. So I think that we have to respectfully just come to a healthy balance here and just commit to what we've decided to do as a team. Because at the end of the day, we are a work family, and we have to do what the company has asked us to do. And so sometimes those conversations do have to happen. Mm. I want to take, so uh, we have a lot of emerging leaders, um, people who are in um, the mid stages of their careers looking either with a recent promotion or something like that. And I want to point out something that you said that I think is so valuable um, is the, and I, anybody who's listened to my podcast more than a few times knows that I've got a harp on this, but it begins with that self-awareness piece of knowing what 
your ethical values. What are your ethics? What are you, what is your value system? Once you understand your own perspectives and what drives you, then looking at the other person, recognizing that they have differences, they, those things are just as value, valid and valuable as yours are. And then navigating it. Because if you miss either one of those pieces, either the self-awareness piece Uh or the other awareness piece, if you will, the recognition that this person is different from me and those differences are valuable. If you can't do either one of those things, you're not going to be successful in getting to that end game, whether it is acknowledging, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but agree to disagree, um, or it's, hey, let's let's get on the same page and, and collaboratively move forward. Like, if you don't have those two pieces, you're not going to be successful. That's absolutely right. Um, and it, it can be a challenge um, because, especially with younger generations, uh, I've learned that they have a hard time engaging and debating in a way that is um, helpful and is healthy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I work with my own uh, teenager and try to get her to engage with me about things and have some healthy conversations that are healthy, but also respectful. And how, how can, how can we do this? And I think that we do have a lot of challenges um, in the modern day workplace uh, because of what you just said. If you don't have that self, that self-awareness piece, you know, you might have an emotional response to something someone said. But if logically you've not taken the time to sit down and really logically think through, okay, these are these are my values. This is why I value this. This is why I believe this. And you can't answer those questions. And oftentimes, if you hear something that engages that emotional center of your brain, you, you shut down that logic. And so then you can't balance that. So then it really hurts your ability to lead properly. It hurts your ability to mentor your team and to lead your team and to manage your team. So I think that um, those skill sets are things that uh, for emerging leaders, they really need to learn how to cultivate so that they can be relevant in, in their workplace and in their personal life too. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned in your bio that you're passionate about helping employees refine their natural giftings. And I think that really aligns with what we've just talked about. Um, How does a person or an employee um, that you work with discover these things to begin with? How do you help them begin to find those things? I am a huge proponent of uh, DISC assessments. Uh, Oh, I'm a nerd for DISC, man. I got you. I got you. (laughs) <laughs> I I am too. Uh, people call me the disc girl, <laughs> but I, I I love disc, and you know I, I think that that's important. So I encourage disc uh, assessments. I encourage personality tests, where it kind of says, okay, these are the industries that you might fit well in. Uh, even even the free little you know the anagrams you know that sure. you know those are fun too. It, anything that gives you some insight into how you might operate in the workplace. Um, I also like emotional intelligence uh, 2.0. I like those assessments where you know if, if you are working on that you know social awareness, self-awareness, so on and so forth. And you're able to figure out some of your skill sets there. You know, I'm like, oh gosh, I'm really not self-aware. Ooh, maybe 
maybe I'm a little bit more introverted than I thought I was. Uh, maybe I should, you know, figure out how I could work on this or vice versa. Maybe I'm more extroverted than I thought and people think that I'm frantic or whatever. You know, that, that perception that people have of you, I think, is important when you're working through these things. But it also helps you figure out what your skill sets are. <laughs> right. Other people also telling you, hey, have you noticed that you're really good at this? Um, so I, I think that all of those things are, are ways that people can figure out what they're good at and then and then tap into that and then try to help them figure out projects and things that they can do to cultivate those skill sets. But I also want to say these are soft skills. Soft mm. skills take time to develop. It's like going to the gym. You know, you don't get a six pack overnight. If you want a six pack, it's a lot of work. You get a bicep, it's a lot of work. So <laughs> you have to you have to work the muscle. And, and you only do that through giving the opportunities to be put in situations that call on your skill sets to be worked. Hmm. Wow. So um, as we wrap up, it's hard to believe that we've already gone through our, our half hour. Um, is there any in your experience, both in, in the financial services industry, but then also in leading these teams and cultivating these environments, would you have any um, wisdom or encouragement that you would want to share to um, future leaders in Appalachia? Sure. So I will say that you should never want to go into leadership because you want to be in charge. That is not the spirit of being a leader. So if you're ever tempted to apply for a job because it's got a manager title or a supervisor title, well, don't do it if you don't have a heart for people. Because being a manager and being a leader are two inherently different things. And to be a true leader is to be a servant to really lay yourself down so that you're able to pull alongside others and help them with their goals. Uh, so it is hard work, but it's rewarding work. And it, it really is something that I'm passionate about and I'm passionate about helping others and I'm always willing to do so. So good luck all you emerging leaders. I hope that you do an amazing job in any field that you go into. Well, thank you so much, Audrey, for being on the podcast today. This was an incredible conversation that I know is going to um, uh, inspire and, and motivate and hopefully direct um, some people to some new resources that they may not have heard of before. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you are welcome. Thank you for having me. There's something really special about a leader who sets the example like Audrey does. What really struck me about today's interview was how important learning is to my guest. From investing in assessments like DISC to reading books and getting degrees, it's clear that she's devoted to developing herself and being the best that she can be as well in order to better serve her team. I love that and I want to do the same. I've tagged some of the resources we've mentioned in this episode in the show notes, like Patrick Lencioni's book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, and Who Moved My Cheese, both of which Audrey mentioned today. If you haven't read them, maybe this is an option for you. Right now, I'm reading Find Your People by Jenny Allen, which was recommended to me by a friend. I'd love to know what you're reading. Leave it in the comments, let me know on my Facebook page, or send me a message. As always, thanks for taking the time out of your day to listen to this week's podcast. I hope you were as inspired by this week's guest as I was. See you next week. Now get out there and make the world a brighter place.